to Making Connections News. I'm your host, Mimi Pickering. On this episode, we're featuring a presentation on racial justice and how it is reflected in Kentucky state policies. Instead of holding their annual January conference in person, the Kentucky Center for Economic Policy hosted a series of webinars. On July 15th, the topic was Race, Equity, and State Policy. How 2021 General Assembly issues affect Kentuckians differently based on race. We'll hear from the first speaker, Pastor Edward Palmer, from the Sign of the Dove Church International. Palmer is a certified diversity trainer, state juvenile justice advisory board member, Radcliffe city councilman, and currently national chair of the National Coalition for Juvenile Justice. We talked about the difference between um, acute compassion, you know, uh, you know, the world uh, responded to um, um, the trifecta of Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and George Floyd. Um, and, and we're very good at, at responding uh, in an acute way to, to, to these polarizing events. But what, what's needed for this conversation and to really move um, uh, an anti-racist uh, agenda forward is chronic empathy and, and passion uh, so that we might bring, a for, bring forth uh, real and sustained uh, change. So, so let me deal with a couple of things that I've heard uh, in my travels around the country. And the first thing I want to deal with is this, I'm not a racist defense, right? Uh, I, I do a lot of diversity training around the country and everybody's trying to defend themselves uh, from this label of being a racist. This, I'm not a racist defense. Uh, th this defense will not move the nation to a place where racial inequities are a part of our history and not a part of our present reality. So that defense will not move us to the place we need to go. And, and when we intentionally and aggressively identify and eradicate systemic policies, systemic racism in the form of policy, then we can make uh, that statement, uh, one nation under God, a reality for all people. So we've got to get out of this individualized perspective, I like to call it that myoptic view, and really start to look at the broader uh, uh, impact of, of public policy uh, in this country. And so I want to talk to you and just motivate you to think about some of these polarizing events as public policy failures and not individual acts, right? So in Georgia, the justice system's initial response to the murder of Ahmaud Arbery was a public policy failure, right? We, we oftentimes think about this father and son duel that murdered him and, and, and everybody's, you know, attacking uh, the two of them. But the, the, the criminal justice system's response was a public policy failure. In Kentucky, the invasion of Breonna Taylor's home that resulted in her death, that was a public policy failure. And, and, and rather than attack, just attack the police officers, we need to really deal with uh, the systemic uh, impact of policies that allow um, for this kind of thing to happen. In Minneapolis, Minnesota, that police officer that murdered George Floyd in plain view of the whole world, that too uh, was a public policy failure. The public policy response to Black Lives Matter, I mean, let's think about this now. The response to Black Lives Matter protests, um, again, was a public policy failure. And then we witnessed last week an attack on our nation's capital where the attackers, quote unquote, protesters, 
didn't quite look like those involved in the Black Lives, Black Lives Matter protests. And again, that was another public policy failure. So this I'm not a racist defense doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. It's the public policy that allows for disparate treatment of black and brown people that matters the most. Not the individuals that carry out these, these acts, but the public policy that shelters them, that protects them, that allows for these things to continue happening. Dr. Martin Luther King said, it may not be true that the law cannot, it, it may, I'm sorry, he said, it may be true that the law cannot make a man love me, but it can keep him from lynching me. And that's pretty important. And I agree with Dr. King. We've got to have a conversation about the impact of public policy. Racism is about the policies that govern our public life. It's not about the individuals who may or may not be a racist. It's about the public policy that governs how we interact with one another, how police interact with black and brown communities compared to how they interact with uh, white communities. Anti-racist policies will identify and eliminate uh, racist individuals. You want to you get rid of those, those few and far, far and few in between racist individuals that may be in our institutions? Well, develop uh, anti-racist policy. It will control the behavior of those would-be racist individuals. Simply put, it's about the rules of the game and not the players of the game. Another phrase I want to deal with is this idea. I've heard this last week, uh, since last week. You guys may have heard this as well. When, when they stormed the Capitol, uh, I heard this as a result of, of the American version of a coup. That's what happened last week. It was the U.S. version of a coup, right? It, it resembled something in a third world nation. The guy we wanted to win didn't win, so we overtake the government, right? And, and so subsequent to that event, I've heard a lot of folks say, this is not who we are. This is not who we are. And then I begin to think about that, and I, I have a question. If that's not who we are, then who was that at the Capitol? Who was that? Another question I ask, can we be better than the public policies that govern our public life? Can we be better than that? So if that was not who we are as Americans, then who were those people that stormed our U.S. Capitol last week? Are they not a part of the collective we? Were they not veterans? Were they not police officers? Some state legislators? Were they not school teachers, school psychologists? Olympic gold medalists were among them. Firemen, CEOs, moms, dads, grandmoms, granddads. Who were they? They were Americans. They were a part of the collective we. So if that's not who we are, then are Gregory and Travis McMichael, the father and son duo that killed Ahmaud Arbery, are they not a part of we? If that's not who we are, is Derek Chafin not a part of the we? A police officer that killed George Floyd before our very eyes? Is Rashad Brooks, the black man shot by police in Atlanta? And that's a whole nother story, shot by police in Atlanta, when we think about how we move these resources around. Shot by police in Atlanta while running away. Is he not a part of the week? 
Sandra Bland, is she not a part of the we? Michael Brown, is he not a part of the we? Trayvon Martin, is he a part of the we? Tamir Rice, is he a part of the we? Is the Central Park Five a part of the we? So this thing is about policy. This is about changing the rules of the game to create the equitable outcomes that we all say we want to see. It's not about individual players because policy will control the behavior of the individuals who serve in our system. We've got to change the rules of the game. So that was my, my, my sermon for the day. Uh, but I do want to get into some policy. And before I get into some policy around juvenile justice, some specific bills that I think are promising for the road ahead, uh, road ahead I want to highlight some things from Senate Bill 200, juvenile justice reform of, of six years ago. Since Senate Bill 200 went into effect, um, we've seen the diversion rate uh, increase from 58% in, in calendar year 2014 to 72% in 2019. We, we've seen the diversion uh, uh, eligibility rate for public offenses go from 55 to 63%. We've seen status offenses, the diversion uh, uh, rate go from 67 to 91%. 91% of the kids who, who commit a status offense end up in diversion, not in court, not in our detention centers. We've seen our county attorney uh, decreases uh, overrides of diversion decreased by 50%. Um, in Louisville, Kentucky today, we've got a total of 22 kids in detention. Not in Louisville, but across the state. 22 kids. Now, Sheree, you can remember when that was in excess of 100 kids, right? And so we've greatly reduced the amount of kids getting to the back end of our system. But here's some good news about um, um, uh, some of the things happening in, uh, let's take Jefferson County, for instance. In Jefferson County alone, We've seen in the last couple of years, we've seen the county attorney override drop 92% for black kids, for black kids, for black kids. That's down from 905 diversion overrides all the way down to 74 as a result of some very intentional work. So a lot of great things are happening as a result of Senate Bill 200. We've greatly reduced the amount of kids getting to the deep end of the system. We've, we've closed three of our state uh, funded uh, juvenile detention centers, and then you add to that uh, Louisville Metro closing its detention center. We've got far fewer kids in cages today than we had in cages five years ago. But a few bills I, I think is important for us to keep our eyes on as we move through this legislative session is uh, SD, SB uh, 36, and I'll, I'll, I'll list the, the main authors of those bills, but there are others who have signed on. Senator Westerfield has filed this bill, and this bill removes this automatic transfer from district court to circuit court. In other words, charge, move a kid from being charged as a, a juvenile to being charged as an adult. Um, this removes that automatic transfer and allows a judge to look at each case and the merits of each case and the mitigating circumstances of those cases uh, and, and determine whether or not a kid should actually be moved up. This is going to go a long way to address racial and ethnic disparities at the YO transfer point. Uh, right now in Kentucky, over 50% of the kids that are, are, are YO eligible and that are referred to adult court are African-American kids because of this automatic transfer piece. So this is a very important bill to addressing uh, racial and ethnic disparities at the worst end 
of our juvenile justice system. And then Senator Neal filed SB 40, which requires a racial impact statement on all bills related to criminal and juvenile justice. I love this bill because what it says is before we uh, uh, make a bill law, let's look at the impact and, and let's determine whether or not, uh, really this equates to putting a racial lens on that bill and determine whether or not this bill is going to have um, unintended consequences on uh, certain populations. And if so, then we can modify that bill to create uh, equity um, uh, before we pass it. And then SB 60 is a bill uh, by Senator Meredith, uh, which uh, removes the death penalty. Um, um, and, and I don't know how much traction this will get, but from a juvenile standpoint, um, um, it doesn't do a whole lot because I can't remember uh, the last time Kentucky sentenced a juvenile to um, 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 death. However, this bill allows for a life without parole. And so that's the real meat of this bill is how do we get life without parole removed from a juvenile offender? Uh, uh, more than 50% of the kids in this country serving life without parole are black kids. And so this is a big concern uh, that we address uh, this over-sentencing of, 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 of youth in general, but definitely the impact on uh, minority youth. And then uh, Senator Gibbons, um, uh, SB 10, and it has several other co-sponsors, but SB 10 creates uh, the Commission on Race and Access to Opportunity. And, and this commission is going to be looking at all things uh, uh, racially disparate and look at how do we um, begin to address racial and ethnic disparity on a broad policy scale uh, across the state. And so I think that's a very promising uh, bill as well. And then on the House side, um, HB 126, uh, filed by Representative uh, Massey, is simply a bill to remove the threshold of felony uh, theft from 500 to 1,000. I think Kentucky is one of three states that still have that very low threshold of 500. By moving it to 1,000, we're hoping again that we uh, uh, minimize how many folks are going into our um, jails and prison systems as a result of this uh, kind of low-level uh, crime. And then there's uh, House Bill uh, 86 uh, by Wiederstein, uh, and this prohibits, it, prohibits the use of solitary punishment as a disciplinary tool. Uh, uh, again, uh, you know, uh, this will affect both uh, the use of solitary confinement for uh, young people uh, as well as for uh, adults. Um, so I think, I think on the juvenile side, we've got some great uh, bills coming forth to, to uh, begin to address some of the racial inequities. I talked with Senator Westerfield as recent as yesterday, and I know he still plans to drop uh, a bill we've attempted to get passed three times that uh, uh, intentionally addresses the racial and ethnic disparity within uh, our system of care. So I'll end with a, a quote from Napoleon. The world suffers a lot, not because of violent or, or bad people, but because of the silence of good people. Thank you. That was Pastor Edward Palmer speaking at the Kentucky Center for Economic Policy's webinar on race, equity, and state policy. Some of the bills he referred to are being introduced and voted on in the Kentucky General Assembly now during their February session. You can follow the progress of legislation on the Kentucky.gov Bill Watcher website 
or on the various sites set up by the Legislative Research Commission. You can leave messages for legislators and committees about particular bills by calling the Legislative Message Line. That's 800-372-7181 from 8 a.m. to 4.30 Monday through Friday. Our stories exploring opportunities and challenges for building a new economy and healthy communities in Appalachia and beyond are available at www.makingconnectionsnews.org and wherever you find your podcasts. This is Mimi Pickering. Thank you for listening.